This is Shivani Samaya, and welcome back to the Financial Executives Podcast. At the height of the pandemic, when the lockdown forced us to stay at home and gave us some of our time back in the day, I certainly found some comfort in binge watching and rewatching some of my favorite movies and TV shows. And yet, despite the production halts that seemed to limit and impact how content was being filmed and released, the streaming services, in a very minute and minuscule way, gave us a way to keep sane and definitely helped me get through some of the darker days of COVID. As part of our longer ongoing series, I had the pleasure to speak with Catherine Gill Charest, Executive Vice President, Chief Accounting Officer, and Controller at Viacom CBS, about some of the pre existing challenges the entertainment industry was already facing and how the pandemic has informed their business strategy moving forward. I want to thank you for joining us today. And before we jump into this conversation, can you give us some idea of your background and how you came to Viacom? Sure, Shivani. First, thanks for the welcome. Um, and, and I can share with you that you were not uh, the only person to binge watch their way through COVID. Um, I and many others joined you. So um, so we have that in common. But it's great to be here um, and happy to give you a little background on my journey. I started in public accounting way back with Price Waterhouse, um, and it was Price Waterhouse then before it became PwC. After that, I was in financial reporting roles in Ninex, another name people might not all recognize, but that was before its merger with Bell Atlantic, which was a precursor to Verizon, um, and also Time Warner. Soon after, Warner Communications merged with Time Inc., and then I left Time Warner about a year before the AOL Time Warner merger talks. Um, from there, I went to Young and Rubicam. I was initially the assistant controller there and then became controller. And when that was acquired by WPP, I stayed with WPP for quite some time after that acquisition and, and became the chief accounting officer for WPP. Um, I really enjoyed being at WPP, but uh, I did eventually find that I missed being in a company that produced content. Um, so I had an opportunity after Viacom and CBS split to join Viacom in 2007. Um, and of course, now I've come full circle with the merger of Viacom and CBS, um, which happened in December of 2019. Um, and I became the controller and chief accounting officer of Viacom CBS, um, where I report in to our CFO, um, Naveen Chopra. And in that role, I oversee the accounting, the financial reporting, financial compliance, and shared service operations of the combined company and all of our divisions, um, which is actually the part of the role I would point out in terms of being you know, really notable. Our controllership organization is fully centralized. It's not a traditional corporate finance function. We do the accounting and reporting for all of the divisional operations too. So we're still integrating after the merger. So we have currently varying levels of centralization across our shared service centers and centers of expertise, but we're getting there. And we also keep an embedded presence um, in our divisional finance operations so that we can still maintain that really important connection to the business and the broader finance support functions. Um, 
I also like to get involved with organizations who, you know, study accounting and can influence um, accounting and reporting regulation and interpretation. So I've been a member of FASAC for the past two years. Um, and earlier this year, I joined FEI's Committee on Corporate Reporting, um, which is what brings me here today. Um, and I'm excited to spend this time. That's really exciting. I always like to hear stories about people whose career kind of takes a full circle. And it was refreshing to hear that you managed to find a way back, you know, to a company that was producing content, seeing as you had missed it so much. But that, in my opinion, positions you in an exceptional place to understand the industry. And you've mentioned that you've switched around in a couple of roles within the media and entertainment industry um, since pre-2007. And so I kind of want to get a better understanding about, from your perspective, what is different about the media and entertainment industry now as it was compared to when you first joined this space? Yeah, well, I mean, when you think about it, I, I joined the space uh, in the early 1990s. So um, it's really different. Um, I, I guess a few themes stand out to me, particularly the first one, and I would have to say is industry consolidation. Um, you know, it's funny, as I was just walking through my background with you, um, I actually hadn't realized just how impacted my own history has been by industry consolidation over the past 30 years. But really, there just continues to be an increasingly smaller pool of larger players, both across our traditional competitive set and also among all the other participants in the whole media and entertainment ecosystem. So, I mean, that was obviously a catalyst behind our own Viacom CBS merger, but it it impacts the whole landscape and our dealings with all different kinds of constituents that we deal with. Um, the second one would have to be technology. Um, I mean, again, in the 90s, it was a big deal when, you know, you could get DVDs by mail and send them back instead of going to uh, one of the old brick and mortar rental stores. Um, that was what demand viewing was if you didn't record something on your VCR at the time. So the Internet just really changed the world starting around then and, you know, and, and the proliferation of connected devices where you can access content and also, you know, uh, connect with each other through social media. So it it makes the whole content viewing experience way more social through that technology. Um, and ultimately, of course, that led to the rise of streaming, which was and continues to be a huge opportunity for our industry, um, while at the same time, you know, challenging all of our traditional businesses business models. And then, you know, the last thing I would say is really the changes in content itself. Um, there's just way more content to choose from. Um, it's increasingly global with U.S. and foreign language content alike getting showcased on global platforms. Um, but it's also more fragmented or niche in nature since consumers have so much content to choose from and so many different ways of accessing and watching content. Um, I also think it's become sort of increasingly edgy in the sense that it reflects the changing world that we live in almost in real time as even users can be creators now. Um, and it also pushes the boundaries on that world. 
Um, you know, and there's there's a growing focus now on diversity and inclusion in front of and behind the camera. Um, and that just paves the way for even more and different stories to tell, which I just find really exciting. So so it's very different, <laughs> you know, I think I would say. A lot of these uh, points that you bring up, um, we're going to get to some of them uh, later on in our conversation, but it's really interesting that you bring up, you know, industry consolidation, the rise of technology and the internet has impacted pretty much every industry. So I'm not surprised that you bring that up, but the oversaturation of content as well is something that I think we'll get to when we talk about the rise of streaming platforms. But we've talked a lot about the the, the trends that have changed since the early 1990s when you joined. But is there anything about the industry that despite all the these changes and the challenges have stayed the same? Well, you know, I talked about content as being something where I saw change, um, but I think that's also a place where we've seen things stay the same in the sense that, you know, it was it was our company's founder who who said content is king. And I I think that that's still true Um, as much content as there is to choose from. The challenge is still the same, which is to develop or find that content that's going to stand out from the rest and really attract and engage viewers. Um, so for me, one of the things I really love about being at Viacom CBS is just how viewer focused we are. Um, our cable channels are among the most widely distributed networks in the world, like Nickelodeon and MTV. Um And we have networks with a really long history of of giving their viewers the content they demand, like a CBS or Showtime. Um, And then Paramount's huge film library. I mean, there's just something for everyone. And for us now, that rich content feeds our streaming services, you know, which is a great opportunity for us. Um, I also think sports is something that's been a continual draw for viewers. Um, It just continues to be a key attraction. And I think that's particularly important now since it's a real draw for live viewing. Um, And otherwise, as you know, we just live in a highly on-demand world as it pertains to content. So, um, you know, sports is something that just continues to bring live viewers to the table. Um, And then... The last thing I I would say is, you know, just relationships in general, Um, the importance of relationships is the same as it ever was. It's, you know, relationships with talent or our distribution partners, our ad customers, our employees, all of those relationships are critical to the overall effectiveness of the company and and how all of its functions can work together effectively. So that's something that um, to me is still as important as ever. That's very refreshing to hear. And I'm, I'm really glad that you bring up relationships as a crucial component to something that stayed pretty constant throughout the changes of the industry, because I think that bleeds really well into, you know, the next question that I have for you, which is as a finance executive, you work in a, um, you know, a financial environment, but what is it like working in a finance environment, but partnering with creative people and what do these relationships look like and mean to you? 
I mean, for me personally, it's it's a literal it, it's a dream come true. I mean, my personal interests have always been in media and entertainment. Um, I am just in awe of creative talent. Um, I wish I had more of it, um, but I'm in awe of people who do. And I genuinely believe that storytelling, you know, reflects the world we live in, but it also changes that world. And that's that makes it a really powerful medium. Um, and I think that being part of that world is is just a gift, even if I don't get to be a, a direct part of the creative process. Um, but our, our management and our teams are cross-functional. And I think for me, it seems like collaboration is just at an all-time high in our company. Our, our senior leadership team crosses content, revenue, streaming, finance, and and other disciplines across the company. And, you know, there's regular conversation and discussion and meetings about opportunities and challenges across all of those functions. Um, and the decision making is really collaborative. It's based on what's in the best interest of the company and its strategic priorities that, you know, that it's working towards. So right now there's a lot of discussions around our streaming KPIs and what's the best way to assess return on content investment and those kind of things. But from my perspective, what's really important to me as as a finance person is that all of our leaders have a really strong appreciation for financial discipline and even the importance of transparency and accounting. So we're real partners, each bringing what we do best to the table and working together towards a common set of objectives for the company that encompass our creative priorities and also our obligations as a public company. You mentioned that collaboration is at an all-time high, and I picked up on that because it's 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 interesting. It's it's contrasting to you know the world that we live in, where you would imagine the pandemic would force collaboration to kind of be impacted in a negative way, given that you can't physically work with anyone. But again, this leads me to my next question to you, which now I want to pivot a little bit more towards, you know, the challenges that came with COVID-19. And so what I want to ask you specifically is as an entertainment industry company that offers a variety of production services ranging from cable network, TV entertainment, to live streaming of sporting events, to film entertainment and now streaming services, what area or aspect of your business faced the most challenge um, because of COVID-19? Um, I mean, I don't know if I would say one area faced more challenges than the other. I would say they all had challenges um, and we also found opportunities. Um, but, you know, I think I think that the pandemic just magnified some of the challenges that already existed in in the industry. Um, so while there were some specific things around COVID, I know we're going to talk about, you know, production and disruption in, in a little bit. Um, but a lot of the challenges we faced, you know, the were, were really present in the industry even before COVID. So, you know, on the TV side, the traditional linear model continued to face that persistent trend of cord cutting and shaving, um, you know, but 
the traditional linear business is still a great business that generates a lot of cash flow. So, you know, it's challenged, but there's also opportunity there. There's still tremendous value there in our channels and our brands. And now they can serve as the foundation for our streaming services, you know, and on the on the film side, um, you know, adapting and staying flexible with how the traditional theatrical window is evolving, you know, was certainly a challenge there. Um, But again, you know, you have a a studio like Paramount. It's a legendary film studio that that has these great franchises and movies, and those can now serve theatrical and streaming audiences. Um, and then in streaming, of course, there's a challenge to gain scale and be able to financially prioritize our investment in streaming, but the opportunities there is huge. So, you know, I think with with all of the different areas, um, certainly they face challenges because of COVID and before COVID, and they will after COVID. Um, But the important thing is to be able to see the opportunities that are there as well and be able to execute on those as a company. Something that I picked up on that I want to keep going here is you mentioned that not only did it magnify some of the challenges that were already present, but you brought up the example of TV, traditional TV business models. And Mm -hmm. I want to bring that up because I know that specifically for your company, you know, the cable network industry, it comprises of a significant portion of your earnings and your revenue. So at the same time that the pandemic took 1.8 million consumers away from their TV services, you know, it also created this huge growth in um, streaming culture. So how, as a company, did you navigate offsetting the negative impacts of the pandemic whilst also trying to capitalize on the streaming platform at the appropriate time? Well, you know, cord cutting persists for sure, um, and we're not at all immune to those trends. Um, but we've seen some stabilization there, and we've also evolved our relationships with affiliates. So we're not only offering these must-see networks, but also advanced ad sales capabilities and streaming apps. Um, and as you said, the pandemic did help to fuel the streaming surge and the the number of streaming services people are willing to subscribe to just continues to grow. So the demand for content is is there. And in terms of what we've done as a company, I, I think in this environment, we think Paramount Plus has a really unique proposition that is compelling to consumers. Um, you know, we have an offering that combines live sports and news and, as you've probably heard us say, a mountain of entertainment. Um, and we also have Pluto TV, a leader in the fast space, and Showtime OTT, which has a differentiated brand position and and appeal to their subscribers. Um, We're also expanding internationally, um, going to market there in different business models. We have our owned and operated services, which is primarily, you know, how our business model works in the U.S., but also bundling our offering in European markets through our Sky Partnership and Sky Showtime JV that we announced earlier this year. Um, We have an incredible breadth and depth of content um, that's compelling to global audiences um, between the Paramount Films, the shows from CBS and Showtime, our cable channels, um, our international free-to-air broadcasters, 
all of those have a really long history of of strong demand with consumers around the world. Um, so we feel, you know, our customers across all markets and demos are really responding to the proposition of what we have to offer, um, whether they're watching UEFA, they're watching our movies, um, like A Quiet Place or Clifford, um, reality tent poles like a Love Island or a Survivor, um, lots of kids programming with SpongeBob, iCarly, um, scripted originals um, like Evil and things. As, as, as we ramp up our content, we increasingly believe there is just something for everyone on Paramount+. Plus. Um, we're also one of the largest Spanish language producers in the world um, and even create local versions internationally of some of our really popular programming like our Shores franchise. Um, so it's it's a lot about the content proposition and we're supporting that content proposition with um, also the strategic distribution partnerships and marketing um, to ensure that we're top of mind for consumers, uh, you know, who are looking for, for content and a streaming service. I want to take a second here to hone in on the financial aspects of, you know, what it means to support the rise of the streaming culture. Um, and it seems like there's an attendee question that's come in that speaks to this, which is, you know, as you see the revenue shift from these different channels of production that came as a result of the pandemic, what specific headaches, if at all, if any, did that bring for the finance team? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, as, as any of the companies who are experiencing working in different mediums now, um, from a finance perspective, it's a challenge to understand the utilization and monetization of the content and it moves, as it moves across all of our platforms. Um, so what we're spending a lot of time doing right now is working through what's the best way to assess how that content is performing and monetizing in the different windows and also how to use that content across each of the windows. So what is it doing for our cable networks or our broadcast network? How is it performing on streaming? And what's like, what's the best way to assess that and the best way to utilize the content? So it seems like there has been some interest in your answer because we ha actually have a follow-up question to the question I just posed to you. Um, and I also, before I get into that, want to take a second to reiterate that uh, much of our conversation here today, Kathy, is really guided and driven by the attendees on the platform. So I want to encourage a lot of the people who are on and listening to us to submit as many questions as they would like to really get their um, conversations heard. But the question that I have here as a follow-up which it, it reads, you know, are current FASB standards adequate for the new media that Viacom is undertaking, specifically the upfront costs and setting up a platform like Paramount Plus? I think, you know, it, in terms of the accounting rules, the recent relatively recent change on film accounting that um, that acknowledged monetization as a film group, I think was really a good advancement for anyone who's involved in streaming. Um, and I, I was involved in those conversations with the FASB, um, as were, you know, many other companies and getting them to acknowledge um 
you know, that not every piece of content can be measured in direct revenues, which was a requirement of the old standard was huge because companies were spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to allocate indirect revenues and things like that in a way that um, wasn't particularly valuable for anyone either in the business or necessarily the readers of the financial statement. So uh, I actually think in that particular instance, the FASB was really responsive um, to that to that issue um, and came up with a standard that uh, that I that I think works better. You know, I mean, all standards have some challenge in their application um, and this one's still relatively new. But I thought that was uh, a, a good move and, and a good win in a sense to get getting the FASB to listen to that uh, to that issue. On the topic of content production, I want to get a better understanding of now looking at how the production halt that resulted as a, you know, the stay-at-home mandate posed by COVID-19, how did these production halts impact and inform your production strategy? You know, can you talk about the, the impacts this had on the business model as well? Um, you know, well, the the production disruption caused delays in our ability to deliver content to our viewers. And that's a problem for ratings and ad sales. And so we're, we're very happy this year we have our new fall season. Um, and those delays also impacted our content licensing revenues for programs we were committed to deliver to third parties or under secondary market arrangements. Um, on the other hand, studios had to delay big film releases and rethink release strategy. Um, so we have some amazing films like Top Gun that are completed, um, but we're waiting for theaters to be reopened at full capacity before we release it. Um, you know, and then there's the continuing operational impacts around health and safety. So we've had to implement a lot of protocols and new guidelines with masking and distancing and testing on the on set or on the lot. Um, you know, so so there's definitely been um, a lot of impacts there. But I think we've also learned a lot from those experiences. You know, we've learned how to shoot things differently, um, utilize remote locations differently, um, you know, things like sporting events. Um, we would have to have multiple crews in case COVID broke out in one of the crews. Um, so there's been a lot of learnings that happened during the pandemic as well that I think we can um, we can benefit from even even beyond COVID. It's really interesting for you to talk about how, you know, I, I recognize and I agree that, you know, the production halts and the, the pandemic has definitely challenged a lot of the ways in which your organization and your overall industry at large does business. But it seems like some of these changes that have been brought on are for the better um, in terms of taking greater account of health and safety into account. But that's that was just an interesting concept that I picked up on. Seems like yeah. there is... Oh, sorry. 
Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, you know, the lens for everything we did was safety. Um, You know, so the communications that even came from our CEO and across our leadership, emphasizing safety as that focus was just critical. Um, So, you know, like everyone else in the industry, we had shutdowns, you know, first more broadly and then sometimes case specific as productions that started up might be halted again, um, sometimes stopped and restarted by false positives or, or an overabundance of caution. But um, but whatever those specific causes, um, certainly a lot of time and money can go to waste. So so we did have to learn how to do things differently. That's for sure. And on that note, there is an attendee question. We talk about health and safety, but this attendee wants to know in what ways does the streaming platform at Viacom ensure or help parents that have means to prevent children from watching programs that are not age appropriate? Um, You know, I'm... I'm not as close to that as others in our company. Um, so I, you know, I can't, I can't really respond exactly to how the parental uh, guidelines and safety work, but uh, I'd be happy to follow up on that certainly for you. Thank you. And I know that we, we, we went off track a little, but coming back to COVID-19, pandemic streaming, and kind of the finance features around it, it seems like accounting for content streaming is kind of specialized. Do you think that there are any particular or specific skills that your staff needed to know how to manage? And how did you support your finance team um, in adopting these changes, if any? I think, um, I mean, obviously, you know, technical proficiency and making sure people had training on the new accounting standard and all that we, we even do. We do a lot of internal trainings so that we can, you know, it's one thing to get a gap training um, and have somebody repeat the gap language to you. But we do trainings internally with our with our folks that really focus on how we apply the guidance and how we've interpreted the guidance and trying to show how it pertains to specific fact patterns that are common in our company. Um, So I would definitely recommend that not only accounting for content, but just generally with some of the accounting standards and principles. Um, You know, it's a big difference to read a standard or have somebody train you on the standard language um, versus uh, training you on how to interpret it in your own company and in your own industry. So we've definitely done a lot of that. and then the other skill that I think we're really focusing on now is I think that just fundamental analytical abilities and, and ability to do data analytics is getting way more important. And this particular change um, is one that also carries that with it because you're looking at portfolios of content and how they're performing and how they're being utilized, um, which is a little bit different than the more traditional every piece of content having its own ultimate available with direct revenue. So, um, you know, I think technical training and I think just analytical and um, technology tool kind of training so that you can do all of the analysis that you need to do to support both the accounting and the management um, you know, needs of wanting to analyze the financial information in different ways. 
And you talk about looking at the overall portfolio or performance of um, production portfolios, but can you talk a little bit of, about how you make the decision to shift a successful show from TV to Paramount Plus? Um, there's an attendee here who wants to know, you know, what goes into making that decision. I'm, I'm sure they do. Um, I'm actually not involved in those decisions, so um, so again, that's that's uh, that's not something I can uh, really talk about. Other than to know, it's it's obviously something that our business leaders spend a lot of time doing and collaborate very closely on. Okay, amazing. And now I want to talk about, and you touched upon this a little bit um, before we got into the attendee questions. And you mentioned how, you know, with to keep up, in my understanding, with the rise of the streaming culture, there's a couple different strategies that Viacom has taken, for example, partnering or a, you know, combining forces with international companies. And you gave the example of Sky. But um, do you have any other examples or um, can you talk a little bit more about how Viacom is doing or what it is doing to keep up with the rise of the streaming culture from a business and finance perspective, please? Yeah, I mean, we have tremendous momentum in streaming. Um, for the first time last quarter, our streaming revenue passed the billion dollar mark. Um, you know, and we finished out our quarter, you know, last quarter with almost 47 million subscribers and over 54 million um, monthly active users on Pluto. So we continue to be really excited about our streaming strategy and the growth of Paramount Plus um, and our ability to create value for our shareholders in that way. Um, you know, we put uh, we we put the financial resources behind it. We have one of the biggest content budgets in media. We invest about $15 billion um, in content investment every year. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, by example with Sky, we have strong partnerships here and abroad, which helps to expose more consumers to our offering um, and also helps in lowering churn and subscriber acquisition costs. And, and we find it to be um, effective to have a flexible model where we go to market in many different ways. Um, you know, I think when people talk about consolidation in the industry, it's important to remember that, you know, Viacom and CBS did merge and that transaction um, enabled the scale that, you know, we see now in our content investment and in our streaming growth. Um, so I, I think we'll always try to find additional ways to create value, but I think we're going to continue to execute on our playbook and, you know, for anybody who follows our company um, that focuses on adding streaming content, launching in new markets, um, getting important distribution deals, building customer awareness, um, while continuing to optimize our traditional media businesses that give us that solid financial platform and great content assets that we can build our future on. And you, you mentioned that earlier, that there was this when we first spoke about the changes that were different about the media and entertainment industry. And this has been um, a sentiment that's been reiterated amongst different types of media and entertainment companies. But there's been a shift from advertising revenues to subscriptions. And I can kind of see that with the streaming service and the rise of the streaming culture. But how has this shift from advertising to subscriptions changed the way that media finance thinks about budgeting? Thank <laughs> you. 
Um, I, you know, I think I think for us because our services have so many different models. Um, I, I, I think I want to say it, it hasn't really changed anything about sort of the, the budgeting process because we have services that are ad supported. So we still have a robust, um, you know, function behind projecting and forecasting and analyzing ad sales. Um, and then, of course, we have an affiliate um, stream that carries with it the affiliate relationships some of which are fixed and some of which are, are variable with with subscribers. And then you add the streaming subscriptions to that. So I don't I don't I mean, it's a change in composition and a change in, you know, number of services and different types of models. But, you know, but the fundamental behind the scenes efforts from a finance point of view um, are similar. And I say similar, not not the same, simply because some of those services are still very new. Um, you know, so it, it's maybe a different level of experience and, you know, uh, than with some of the traditional streams that we've been looking at for so long. Um, but it's, it's fundamentally the same in that way. That's very interesting to learn. So I'm going to pause on our questions and it seems like that there has been another attendee question that's come in and this attendee wants to know how many shared service centers do you have globally and are they geographically based or function based in terms of processes they manage? Um, we, we, uh, we have really one, I mean, we, ha we have some people in other locations, but, uh, the concentration of at least for the finance functions, um, is, uh, located in Budapest. And what was, sorry, were there other parts to that question? What was there or? Yeah, the, I could read the question over for you. It, it, it was, <laughs> how many shared service centers do you have globally? Are they geographically based or function based in terms of processes they manage? Got it. Um, so our shared service center um, is not geographically based. I mean, they, they happen to, um, you know, be in Budapest, but their functions um, in large part are handled globally. It's just um, a place where we started initially a much smaller shared service center quite some time ago, I would say. 10 years or so ago, and it just worked out successfully there. Um, we've been able to get good talent there. We have good relationships there. Um, and um, we've built it over time. So um, they're, they're not geographically based. They're generally global functions. But we handle a lot of um, finance and accounting uh, functions out of there. And I think we touched upon this earlier, but perhaps you could talk about, or could you please comment on how accounting concerns or the concern of meeting the Wall Street expectation is or has affected the scheduling of releases, movies, TV shows, and streaming, if at all? Um, I don't... I, I don't really see I don't really see it affecting it. I mean, we all know we have um, we have quarterly earnings, but um, the creative process and especially with COVID over the last two years, um, there's so many other variables that, um, you know, that that, uh, you know, it's, it's not really driving the decision making. I think, you know, the connection with analysts and things is just making sure they sort of understand, you know, as we if we change plans or change release patterns. Um, that that's well understood, so it doesn't create gaps in expectations, but it's not driving. 
And do you expect that either organic, so acquisitions or inorganic growth built from within is more likely to be larger in the next five years? Um, that's that's something uh, I, I'm not prepared to comment on. And actually, this is a very interesting and very timely question that's come in. So I want to bring this up, uh, which is how has ESG impacted the Viacom CBS culture? Um, it, it has really impacted it. I mean, you know, Viacom has a long history of uh, being involved in um, particularly social um, you know, types of things. And, you know, we have, we have something that is called content for change. It's a, it's a program that started at, um, our cable network BET, but is now expanded across our, our networks. Um, and we have always been involved and just continue to be involved in, you know, content that, that gives good representation um, for diverse populations that talks about issues. Um, we have a lot of awareness around mental health um, and efforts to um, portray, you know, mental health uh, uh, things in a positive light. Um, so we've been involved in that for a very long time. I think that from a finance perspective, um, what has really changed in the last year or two is is the focus on the information that gets reported in, you know, in ESG books and reporting. And of course, the, you know, some of the efforts or the the trends toward regulating that more and things like that. So we're finding ourselves a little bit more involved than we used to be as a finance organization to make sure that information is being vetted and reviewed in the right way. Um, you know, how it's being reported, who's involved and those kind of things, almost, um, you know, almost socks like in a way uh, in terms of the reporting in that area. And that's really been the big change, I would say, in the last year or two. On the, the topic of, you know, diversified content and creating content for social good and social betterment, there's a, an attendee who wants to know how much of the content is foreign language. Do you see a growth in the rise of foreign content? Um, yep. I, I don't know how much. Um, but but we are one of the biggest Spanish language um, producers. Um, so there's definitely, um, I think, an increase in foreign language content because it can be used, of course, locally, but also on global platforms. There, te- there seems to be um, a growing demand for it. So we are definitely um, seeing, I think, more foreign language programming or versioning. You know, as I mentioned, we've taken some of our um, franchises like the Shores and done localized versions. Um, so, so you know, even even in that way, the franchises that are really strong and can can translate, so to speak, um, you know, to other markets, um, we can we can do local language versions of those. And we're seeing we're definitely seeing more interest in those in the local markets and globally. 
And I want to um, take a second to remind the attendees we are nearing the end of our conversation today. So I encourage you to continue sending in your questions because they have been exceptional in guiding this conversation. But there is a question that I think is really interesting um, that I was actually going to get to in a little bit, which is as a chief accounting officer of a media and entertainment company, is there anything unique about your relationship with the CFO? How involved does he or she get with technical accounting aspects? And what does your functional relationship look like? Um, I mean, I don't know if uh, being in media and entertainment makes that relationship different. I think that, um, you know, certainly for me, I have worked with a lot of different CFOs. I mean, the first last 12 months or so, I've had three different CFOs coming from legacy Viacom initially and, and then into Viacom CBS. Um, so I think that relationship is driven a little bit more by the two people involved. So um, for me, certainly, um, I think I've had more strategic type CFOs um, in my recent history, which um, which I which I think is a trend. You know, the CFOs have been looked at more as business and operational partners for the CEO. So I would say um, not, you know, not that involved and not needing to be that involved sort of in technical accounting, which, um, you know, which I think very squarely uh, fits on fits on my plate. Um, so I think the relationship that I look for is one where my CFO trusts me to handle those kind of things so they don't have to take up, you know, their time, um, but also one where they, um, you know, respect and appreciate, um, you know, the value of, you know, the accounting and controllership function and, and the importance um, around transparent and, you know, good disclosure and accounting um, and all of that kind of stuff, a well-controlled environment and has appreciation for all of that. Um, and I've been fortunate um, to say uh, that that I have had those kind of relationships with the CFOs I have worked for, in, including, uh, you know, uh, with Naveen right now. You talk a lot about, um, you know, having trust in the role and trust in the relationship. And I have trust in your experience as a finance executive to be able to speak to the question that I'm uh, going to pose to you. <laughs> in your opinion, um, you know, what should finance leaders in the media and entertainment companies focus on doing better to adapt to the challenges that seem to have been magnified by COVID-19? Um, I mean, I mean, better would suggest that I think they're not doing it well now. And um, I know a lot of my counterparts and I, I think uh, I think as an industry, actually, we've all done a, a pretty good job. Um, so I might not say better, but in terms of what I think, um, you know, we need to focus on is I think it's flexibility first off i mean we work in an industry that is really dynamic um and that's the fun of it i think that's what a lot of us love about it it's also very creative which i think is also something that that we love about it um but the ability to be flexible as a finance person um 
see another point of view, communicate in a way that people who are not traditional accountants or finance people want to listen to and can understand. Um, you know, I, I think you can't underestimate um, that ability to take maybe complex accounting concepts and things like that and translate them into things that business folks not only understand, but kind of want to listen to um, so that you can have that that partnership with them. That's that's so important, um, really, to make the whole operation effective. You touched upon um, some of the challenges that um, you know media finance leaders are experiencing, but specifically, uh, two attendees have asked this question, and I think it's important for us to talk about it. But can you comment on um, workforce shortages? Has uh, Viacom been impacted in the same way as other companies in the industry has? And if so, what is your take on why this is occurring? Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, certainly, I don't think it's just an industry thing either. I, you know, I think we're reading about workforce shortages um, affecting our industry, um, affecting even our auditors. You know, they're having trouble finding and retaining people. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a it's a definite turn. And I think in terms of what to do about it, I think as as companies, we have to look at, you know, what we offer to our employees. And that's not always who can offer the highest dollar. There's a culture, there's a work experience. um, And I think human resource organizations are having to become a lot more creative in how they think about attracting and retaining employees. Um, Because, yeah, it's not it's not a company specific problem. It's not an industry specific problem, but, um, you know, finding talent and retaining that talent. Um, and for us in an industry that's very people centric, always at the top of my list of things that, that I'm interested in. Um, and personally, you know, the, the things that I do about it are just try to think about what type of work experience we can give our employees. What is it that's special? Um, we're fortunate in our industry that we do offer something special. Um, it's an industry that people want to work in, um, but it's not enough. You know, it's it's not enough to just say, hey, you know, we're a fun company. We do fun things. So everyone will want to work here and stay here. Um, you have to really think about your employees, career pathing and development, um, you know, work-life environment, um, all of that. Absolutely. I think you are crucial. You know, you have to give value to the the employer, to the employment and, you know, value the work that they bring you. Um, it's a very relationship um, centric organization um, from what I'm getting Viacom is. But this has been an exceptionally um, insightful conversation for me. I know I personally learned a lot about um, how business models have been affected with the rise of the streaming culture. I've learned a lot about what Viacom specifically has done and what is doing, you know, to keep up with these changes. But I want to thank you for your time, for being here with us today and um, sharing all your insights and what you've learned about the industry as being, you know, a finance executive for a significant number of years. So thank you so much, Kathy, for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was uh, it was fun. Thanks a lot.